couple of nights ago I began a series of talks on how we construct our identity and how the practice of insight frees us from the suffering inherent in that identity. Tonight I want to continue with the second papancha or proliferation of thought that serves to construct an identity and the practice of insight into dukkha or the unsatisfactory condition of experience. Often in our thoughts and in our conversations, the focus of our topic discussion is the future. What we'll be doing later, what we hope to become, what we hope to get or have, the next project, the next retreat, the next job, the next holiday, the next relationship. In the future, however we envision it, can be a source of excitement, of planning, busyness, enthusiasm. And on the other hand, it can be a source of fear, apprehension, deep concern, anxiety. The way we relate to the future, how and what we desire for ourselves in the future, serves to create an identity in the present. Desire, planning, craving, these are or this is an extraordinarily powerful force in our life. It moves us moment to moment. The identity constructed or conditioned by our proliferation of desires is equally powerful and tenacious. And it is most apparent in the manifestation of thoughts that begin with, I want. The function of insight practice is to free us from the craving, free us from the unhappiness of craving. Craving is one of these three papanchas, or one of the three proliferations, is a mental state, deeply conditioned, rooted in attachment, accompanied by delusion. And remember that delusion is used to ascribe to our experiences meaning and significance which is beyond the bare experience itself. It is a project or a product of our imagination and the embellishing of our experience by interpreting everything through the lens of me, mine or I. 
in the macro perspective, it's quite easy to see the operation of craving, desire, and wanting. We're all here for some reason. Somewhere back there, we had this crazy thought, I think I want to be there. And we proceeded to follow it through, act on that, and we've managed to get here. So it's quite easy to see how desire and wanting constructs our future, conditions now our identity as a yogi. This craving, this desire, this wanting moves us through our life moment to moment, day by day, year after year, lifetime after lifetime. The Buddha's distinctive wisdom in his realization of the truth was that he discovered or realized that this craving, this desire, this attachment that we are so compelled by is the very source of our unhappiness, our discontent, our anxiety. We've all had the opportunity to acknowledge of some experience, it isn't what I thought it would be. It isn't as satisfying as I had imagined it might be. What we imagine behavior and activity and things being able to provide is often far greater than what they actually provide. And we can see the papancha of craving in the mind. Along with the profusion of desires comes with each of them a sense of self. Who we are that feels so deficient and needs what we crave. Or imagining the uh, getting of what we want, identifying with the self that will enjoy that. In either case, a sense of self is constellated around the thought of desire. And until and unless we see that what we desire has inherent in it the dukkha characteristic, we'll hang on. We'll hang on to that thing, that experience, that person, that whatever it is we crave, and the self that is conditioned by it will continue to exist. 
and suffer as a result of it. The magic of mindfulness is that it brings into stark relief the truth of dukkha. Dukkha, the characteristic of pain, the characteristic of the uh, unsatisfactoriness of uh, experience, refers most intimately to the inability of experience, any experience, to provide a lasting, stable security for us, for our sense of self. And without that security, without that stability, without that belief that there's some ideal future waiting for us if we just get it together, without that, we live with uh, insecurity. The self that is created through desire is unbelievably pernicious and persistent and strong. So I want to look at and explore a little bit the nature of craving in our mind, what we crave, and how craving conditions a sense of self, how the practice of mindfulness and the development of insight into dukkha arrests that craving and ultimately uproots it from the mind, freeing us from the inherent suffering of identification with self. Craving is a mental state. It's a state of mind that arises due to its own conditions. And when it is present, it causes us to focus on the pleasant aspect of the experience only. We get a form of tunnel vision when tanha or desire craving is in the mind we don't see the negative or the uh, problematic uh, elements of what we desire we only see the pleasant enjoyable satisfying aspects of it I mentioned before that all of the papancha, craving, conceit, wrong views, are accompanied by restlessness, rooted in restlessness. The mind that repeatedly reflects and thinks and ponders and, and dwells in restlessly desire. It's also accompanied by attachment. And in this case, 
its attachment to the object of desire, but it's also identification with or attachment to the sense of self. And thirdly, all papancha is accompanied by delusion. What does that mean? That desire is accompanied by delusion. It means that we ascribe to our experiences meaning, value, significant characteristics beyond the bare experience itself. We give experience an interpretation. And the primary delusion that we suffer from is ascribing to experience possession. It's my experience. It's me that's having this experience. This experience is a reflection and is happening to me. I am doing this. I am having this. I am experiencing this. That is a delusion. That is an interpretation of the bare facts. But it is so persistent and it is so slippery and it is so ubiquitous that we don't even know that. It's a delusion. We believe it. Our teacher Upandita used to refer to the multiple layers of delusion that we live with. And this is one layer. It's a big one. And it's a, it's a thick one. It's a really um, tenacious one. But, again, the magic of mindfulness and the, the power of insight is that it can see through that delusion and free us from the inherent suffering of craving. The Buddha's distinctive realization of the truth was encoded in his articulation of the Four Noble Truths, the truth of dukkha, And the second truth being that the cause of that dukkha was craving. We don't crave dukkha. That's silly. But the Buddha saw that in our very pursuit of happiness, it is craving that is the source of unhappiness. I saw an advertisement recently that said, invest for the long term, because the future is rarely what you imagine. Invest in what? If the future is so unknown and so unstable and so insecure, how do we how can we possibly know what to invest in for security? 
is only one thing that will give you sure security in the unstable future, and that's awareness. Awareness, insight, self-knowledge, the only thing you take with you in the unstable unfolding of conditions. So how can we use the Buddhist teaching on the truth of dukkha and the truth that the cause of dukkha is craving? How can we use that teaching to enhance our life, our practice, our understanding? Can we take this teaching in, not as dogma, to somehow force on ourselves, but as a possibility, uh, an understanding that we uh, use to see the unfolding of our own minds in practice and discover for ourselves. Is craving the source of my suffering? Is it? We're becoming intimately familiar with our suffering. The pain, the insecurity, the vulnerability, the fear. Why? Why do we suffer? Don't you want to know? Really? Do you care? Of course we care. The Buddha said it's craving. Is it? How are we going to know for sure? You can't find it in the book. You can listen to a teacher and believe what they say, but do you know for sure? Only by looking deeply at your own experience can you discover the source of your own unhappiness. Whatever unhappiness you have, Buddha said of craving that life in any world, any plane of existence is incomplete, it's insatiate. One is a slave of their craving because craving is insatiable. Cannot satisfy craving. Our lives as human beings are lived as if we were slaves to our endless desires. Look in your life and see how we spend so much of our time and energy pursuing what we believe will bring us happiness. Acquiring, chasing after, that which brings us delight, happiness, pleasure, hopefully security, and enduring happiness. But when the Buddha acknowledged that craving is insatiable, he recognized that it may be insatiable, but it's sometimes there and it's sometimes not. Sometimes we're caught in craving, sometimes we're not. So it is possible to be free of craving and still live perfectly well. 
Buddha saw, craving is satisfied by nourishment. When you get what you want, you feel satisfied, briefly. And so the Buddha looked at what is it that provides this nourishment? What is the nutriment for craving? What is the food of craving, really? Because that which feeds craving is what feeds our being. So the Buddha identified four experiences which feed craving. And the first of these is physical food. Feeds the body, feeds this being. Second is contact. Basically, sensory stimulation feeds the mind. Volition, the intention, the, the, the sense of decision-making and autonomy, feeds our sense of self. And fourthly, consciousness, the endless stream of knowing which is, we are. So I want to speak about these four nutriments, show how they condition a sense of self, and show how the insight into dukkha uproots them, eliminates them, arrests them, and ultimately uproots them from the mind. Now the first nutriment is physical food. Obviously we need physical food to maintain the body, we're not talking about that. We're talking about all of the food trips that we have that are extraneous to actually nourishing the body. Desires, food fads, diets, compulsive eating, the very unfortunate diseases of bulimia and anorexia and a whole host of other compulsive, obsessive, addictive uh, eating or I should say consumption disorders. What's going on there? When we find ourselves caught, as we all do at times, in some unconscious compulsive or obsessive consumption, eating. What's going on? Nourishing the body? I don't think so. Nourishing the self? Aha, uh -huh. quite possibly. Nourishing a sense of self. How does that happen? Much of the delight, the fascination, the desire around eating has nothing to do with the taste. It has to do with the sense of self that is created by uh, pursuing, consuming certain kinds of food, consciously or unconsciously, and the sense of uh, security that comes from doing that or the sense of uh, uh, suppressing certain feelings 
or emotions that come from doing that. Have you paid attention to eating? Really close attention to eating a meal here. I encourage you to. Because when you pay very close attention, where you really, you you make a point of noticing every movement of the hand and the mouth and the swallowing and the chewing and the loading of the fork or the spoon every time and you put it down and you really pay attention. What you see is what we eat mostly is thoughts. (laughs) Thoughts. Some of them have to do with the food and a lot of them don't. Our mind is filled with thoughts when we eat. Tasting the food is incidental to the nourishment that we get. Before I went to Burma, I was a vegetarian for about 12 years. And um, I had some, you know, philosophical, moral, ethical, financial health reasons for doing that. And I was quite happy with, you know, eating that way. And when I went to Burma, I sat down at my, for my first meal in the monastery, and on the table were about six meat dishes and white rice. And that was it. And I was confronted quite quickly with um, my identity as a vegetarian. Luckily for me, I was more interested in practicing than maintaining my identity as a vegetarian. Mm -hmm. But it was a confrontation. It was a it was a little bit of a shock to be confronted so obviously with not being able to maintain my sense of self identified with vegetarian being a vegetarian. And I was able to let that go. Um, it took a took a couple of weeks for my body to get used to the new food, but nevertheless, it was the letting go in the mind that made it possible at all. Now, many of us have unconscious attachments to food. What we eat, when we eat, how much we eat, where we eat, what kind of food we eat. And when we cannot sustain that conscious or unconscious habit, what happens? We feel threatened. Immediately. We feel threatened. We feel insecure. Our sense of self is under attack by conditions, impersonal conditions. (laughs) Do we struggle to hang on and and try to um, uh, preserve our habit? keeping that sense of self reinforced? Or can we let it go? Flowing with conditions. Being at ease with the conditions of our life. Remember that phrase in the metta? 
May you live at ease with the conditions of your life. What if the conditions of your life change totally and you can no longer eat the food that you eat? You might notice the meals have been late here uh, two or three times. What happens when the bell doesn't ring at 12 noon sharp to call you to lunch? Immediately the mind starts thinking, I wonder what's going on. I wonder if there's going to be enough food. I wonder if we're going to have food. I wonder what. And so easily we feel threatened around food. There's always plenty of food. There's always enough to, to live. Nobody's you know, passed out here. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not, we're not in imminent threat of uh, wasting away. Did you ever stop and consider or notice how much dukkha there is around eating? Just the physical getting, you know, the work, the money, the shopping, the getting it home, stuffing it in the shelves, you know, when you want it, digging it out, opening it up, putting it in the stove, heating it up, stirring it up, doo -doo -doo -doo, all the dirty dishes that also got to be done, uh, you know, the hunger that you feel before you eat it, you know, the eating of it, and if you really like it, eating a little too much, and the discomfort of that, and then you do the dishes, you pack away the garbage, you haul the garbage off to the tip, you've got to digest that stuff, and that's a whole process. And it comes out the other end, which is not always pleasant. And in that whole process of sustaining ourselves with eating, how much of it is enjoying the taste of that food? 5%? Maybe? 5%. How much of it is dukkha? <laughs> what are we investing our time in? What are we investing our sense of self in? When you see dukkha, if you pay careful attention, you see the dukkha associated with this whole process, this proliferation of thoughts and desires and consumption ar around food, you begin to say, I think I'll let go of this a little bit. You just, you can't stop the dukkha, but you can stop investing in it. And when you see the dukkha, what do you, all you want to do is let go. When you really see the unpleasantness, the unsatisfactoriness of attachment and identification with food, and the sense of self that is conditioned by it or created by it, you just want to let go. When I was a monk, I was taught uh, a reflection to help establish a right relationship to eating and food. And I want to share it with you as a way of um, kind of bringing out how the Buddha saw a right relationship to food supporting freedom. Reflecting carefully, I use this alms food, the food that we gather on alms round, 
Not for pleasure, not for indulgence, not for personal charm, not for beautification, but only for maintaining this body so that it endures, for keeping it unharmed, for supporting the holy life of practice, so that the feelings of hunger are put aside and new feelings from overeating do not arise, then there will be for me a lack of bodily discomfort and the ability to live and practice comfortably. Is that our relationship to food? If not, what is? The Buddha didn't encourage fasting, but he did encourage and require monks and nuns not to eat afternoon, not to eat solid food afternoon, as a way of uh, renunciation, giving up for a period of time all of the, the, the mental chatter around meals. And there's a lot. And also to preserve energy for practice later in the day. It's something that some of you have undertaken here, the eight precepts not eating afternoon. And you'll see that it, it really is, it really removes a big chunk of mental activity to know that after the noontime meal, that's it. Free to practice, unhindered by all of this thought around food. Physical food, the first nutriment for the mental state of craving. Second, nutriment for craving is contact. Contact is that moment when a sense object strikes the sense door, giving rise to the sense consciousness, and we feel something. Sight comes in contact with the eye, giving rise to seeing consciousness, and we feel the pleasantness of it, the unpleasantness of it. Sound comes in contact with the ear, giving rise to hearing consciousness, and we enjoy the pleasant. We resist or cringe at the unpleasant. Odor comes in contact with the nose, giving rise to smelling consciousness, the same. We smell and enjoy the pleasant. We smell and disenjoy the unpleasant. And this contact, sensory contact, is going on all the time. All the time. You can't shut it off. You can't shut off your ears. You can't shut off your skin from feeling, feeling the sensations. You, you can close your eyes, but the mind will produce visions. And so sensory contact is happening all the time. Does our sense of self depend on, or is it conditioned by, or even 
uh, affected by what we experience sensually. Does it? Let me ask you. When you sit down to, to practice, when you can sit with no pain in the body, none, whatsoever, just total nice, soft, pleasant, comfortable, light, sensory feelings. You know what a sense of yourself as a yogi you have? It's like, hey, this is pretty good. I must be doing something right. Wow, good yogi. And then you come in the next sitting and you sit down and your body's heavy and it's contracted and it's tight and you've got the meat hook in the back and the elephant stepping on your knee and your ankles are on fire in the bonfire and your body is in torture. Do you say, oh, I'm a really good yogi? <laughs> I don't think so. Mostly we think, oh, I must be doing something wrong. What's the matter with me? And our sense of self is uh, not so enjoyable. What's the difference? One's pleasant, one's unpleasant physical experience. Our sense of self is deeply conditioned by and continually affected by the pleasantness and unpleasantness of what we're experiencing. When we move through our life and we consider what we might do with our tomorrows, do we plan on doing things that we know are going to be very unpleasant? We, we never plan to do unpleasant things, or I should say, rarely. Sometimes we plan to go on a retreat and we forget. <laughs> we forget what it's really like. We think it's going to be really wonderful, right? Uh, <laughs> No, we, we plan to pursue and enjoy pleasant experience. Why? Because we personally feel good when we do. We enjoy good music. We enjoy pleasant sights. We enjoy soft, sensual touch. We don't want to wear uncomfortable clothing in a really difficult environment. Sometimes we do temporarily, but it's not our first choice. Right? And our sense of self is, is, is reflected in the experience of this contact. Now, one of the results of this proliferation of desire and craving around the pleasant uh, sensory experience is we have uh, lived lifestyles of massive consumption of experience. The more, the better. And the more intense, the better. The more strongly we feel something, the more alive we feel. Right? If it's really intense, whew, boy, we're really alive. If some, somebody told me today in an interview, uh, what was they saying? Something about Practice is very uh, subtle and it's uh, not very interesting. It's just kind of uh, uh, not, not very intense. So it's not very interesting. We don't look for that kind of experience. It doesn't reflect uh, uh, a sense of self that's very uh, noticeable or enjoyable. 
So we look for intensity. What happens when we stimulate our senses more frequently and more intensely is they grow dull. Yeah. The more you stimulate your senses, the less you can feel. Yeah. The only thing to do when you feel less or when you become become desensitized is more stimulation and even stronger. And so, you know, it's like the addict. You've got to have a stronger hit to be able to feel anything. And so we live our life pursuing stronger and, and more and more sensory stimulation and getting duller and duller as we go along. Now, what happens when you come on retreat? What happens when you stop stimulating yourself and you go into sensory deprivation, in a way? It's kind of like going into sensory deprivation. You're not going to the movies, you're not listening to music, I hope. Uh, you know. <laughs> what happens? You don't stimulate the senses, suddenly they start to wake up. Everything becomes much more alive. You know, white rice never tasted so good. <laughs> right? Or just the very ordinary experiences of just uh, being in the body and, and being in the environment is exquisitely sensually delightful. The ordinary becomes phantasmagorical. <laughs> Bland becomes psychedelic. Why? What's happening there? You give the senses a rest, you, you, you starve them a little bit, uh, and uh, they, they notice more, they see more, feel more intensely. Aditya Upandita says, a life without mindfulness is like food without salt, bland, tasteless, tasteless, insipid, and mediocre. Right? Mindfulness is like the spice of life. Brings out the real flavor of experience. I have a friend who, when she was younger, was going through a time of transition and the resultant insecurity and fear and uh, overload of emotion was too intense. It, it couldn't, couldn't handle it. And so in some magical trick of the mind, she unconsciously began to depress her feelings. Okay? And she became depressed. And uh, could no longer feel, and life became kind of, you know, difficult. And after, you know, some time with her depression, she got a diagnosis and, and got a prescription and got some uh, antidepressant. And she was able to um, live with the uh, depressed feelings and and allow them in just uh, a little bit and uh, she negotiated this time of transition in her life 
and then after some a period of time, it was a few years, she decided to come off of the antidepressants, to, to stop taking them. And of course, when she did, all the feelings that she did not feel during that time came into view. But now she had uh, some stability in her life and some, um, some structure in her life that could support her while she went through the feelings of the, the overwhelming feelings that she couldn't handle initially. And uh, she was then able to uh, integrate those feelings and to, to move on in her life. And what we see in a situation like that, and I mention it because we've all been through it, yeah. and, uh, and increasingly there's a, there's a lot of us that are using uh, pharmaceuticals to help us in through one condition or another, and they're skillful for, they can be skillful use of, use of them to, to help us in transition. But what's going on there when we think of uh, our sense of self? Our sense of self, overwhelmed by feelings, uh, feels pretty uh, overwhelmed. Can't handle it. Can't handle that sense of self. The sense of self that is constellated by those conditions. And so, cool out, chill out, suppress, depress, uh, uh, to a place where we can handle that sense of self, where we can handle our sense of self in this experience that's so overwhelming, so challenging, so demanding. And then when we have some structure in our life to then open up again and to reintegrate the feelings that we uh, couldn't have or couldn't handle before and come to uh, another or a different sense of self. All through contact with environmental uh, experiences. And as we um, come into contact with overwhelming flood of intense stuff, our sense of self suffers or is conditioned by it. And when we can open to uh, the uh, flood of environmental stimulation, then our sense of self changes. When our sense of self is uh, fragile, uh, weak, uh, dependent, uh, it's very unpleasant. And if we don't see the suffering or the dukkha of that, then we can, we can uh, continue in that direction. If we see the unpleasantness, if we see the unsatisfactoriness, if we see the dukkha characteristic quality, then we can begin to let go of that sense of self that is conditioned by it. Several years ago, several years ago, I was involved in a relationship which um, didn't go the way I wanted. And uh, I was dumped. And there was a tremendous amount of pain in, in being uh, dumped like that. And my sense of self was really uh, hurt, threatened, vulnerable, uh, overwhelmed. It wasn't being reaffirmed. 
the sense of self that I wanted wasn't being reaffirmed. It wasn't being uh, reflected in the condition of this other person. And uh, I suffered. I was experiencing a tremendous amount of dukkha, unhappiness, frustration, disappointment, uh, agony at this failed relationship. I had to leave the situation. It was just too too much to, to put up with. And uh, for a long time, I had a lot of anger, uh, a lot of blame, uh, and I felt not very good about myself. And then I remember one day, uh, several months later, uh, a few months later, three or four months later, I was uh, driving in New England uh, somewhere, and the thought came to me, just the insight, this, this understanding, that this person that dumped me was just not doing it to me. It wasn't, she wasn't doing it to me. She was just living out her life. She was just doing what she was doing. She had a different understanding of our relationship than I did. And she wasn't trying to destroy me or, you know, probably didn't have anything to do with me. (laughs) She was just doing her own thing. And I saw that. And in that clarity of seeing, really, removing the interpretation of her behavior, accepting the dukkha of that situation. Just accepting it. Because I'd been resisting it all along. Just accepting it. Gone. Immediately, all of that suffering, all of that poor sense of self, all of that uh, pain, (coughs) the frustration, the disappointment, the loneliness, lifted just like that. Instant. And it was gone. I was suffering before, but I didn't accept it. I didn't acknowledge it without interpretation. I interpreted it, reflected, let that pain reflect a sense of self which was unbearable to live with. And when I saw the dukkha and accepted the dukkha, free of suffering. I think it was Ajahn Chah said there's two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering is hanging on. The suffering that leads to the end of suffering is letting go. It hurts to let go. You know, there's some pain in letting go, but it leads to the end of suffering. Take your fist, squeeze your fist as tight as you can. And after 10 seconds, it becomes, you know, uh, achy. After uh, a minute, it becomes really hard and stiff. And after two minutes, it goes completely numb and you don't feel it. After a half hour, if you begin to open your fist, you've been numb for 28 minutes. You don't feel a thing. You're You're just hanging on for dear life, numb. When you begin to open your fist again, all of the cramping, aching, stiffness, pain comes back. 
right? But in that opening and letting go is the end of that suffering. Now the same thing is going on in our mind. When our mind grabs onto a sense of self, any sense of self, there's that initial mm, ache, pain, and then we go numb. And we live with that self and it's, you know, we're completely oblivious to it in a way until we have to let go. All the pain comes back. But in that experience, that conscious experiencing of the pain of letting go of that sense of self is the end of suffering. That's, that's the end of suffering. The practice we do shows us, brings us to this end of suffering. So I've talked about two of the nutriments for this mental state of craving. Physical food that feeds the body and a sense of self. Contact with sensory experience that uh, feeds uh, a sense of self. The third nutriment is volition or intention. And I can only spend a brief time on this. But what is volition and intention? Every time we make a decision or we make a choice, we act out of intention, out of volition. And that decision and that choice reflects a sense of self. Who makes a decision? I do. And it's the decision that will reinforce, that will continue this sense of self into the future. And so the more we um, act intentionally and with a lot of volition, unconsciously, then the stronger this sense of self becomes. It's a feeling of being in control of having autonomy, of being autonomous, and being able to direct our life the way we want it to go. And so we make those decisions, we move through life in that way, and uh, the more successful we are at that, the more successful our decisions, uh, the more successful our choices, then the stronger this sense of self becomes. Mm. Okay. When the volition is strong and effective, the identification of self, or the self-identification, or the self-identity, is enjoyable. When our volition and the power to choose and effect decisions is weak, then our self-identity is unpleasant or unenjoyable. But nevertheless, there's a sense of self conditioned by choice intention. When our volition is thwarted, opposed, ineffective, or weak, we experience dukkha. When we can't have what we want, when we can't effect the changes in our life that we feel desirable, we feel 
our sense of self is threatened, weakened, challenged, vulnerable. We can't maintain it in the face of these uh, uh, recalcitrant and opposed conditions. One of the uh, instructions and encouragements that we offer in practice is to is to surrender to conditions, open to the conditions, I should say, open to them, to see really what sense of self is being constellated here. Rather than moving through life like a bull in a china shop, oblivious to a lot of suffering, open to it. See how your sense of self is conditioned by the choices you make, the decisions you effect and carry out. It's not our cultural conditioning to, 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 to do that. A lot of our cultural conditioning is to uh, really be uh, strongly self-determined and to uh, really act forcefully in pursuit of what you uh, want with a real can-do attitude. Uh, and so it's a, it's a challenge really in practice to um, begin to open to the conditional nature of this sense of self. How our sense of self is really a, constant, uh, uh, a fluctuating thing dependent on conditions that are mostly out of our control. Conditions, uh, things happen, and we, we, we have to adapt, we have to respond, react if we're unconscious, respond if we're conscious to them. One way we can see the, um, the sense of self conditioned by volition is when we are sitting in pain. And the intention arises in our mind, I think I'll move, or should I move? And the debate begins, should I move now or later? And somehow there creeps into this debate, if I move, I'm not a good yogi. Inevitably that comes. We somehow have a lesser sense of ourself if we move because of pain in our sitting. If we can endure and not move, then our sense of self as a yogi is enhanced. Just by being uh, following or not following this volition. When we see the dukkha, either way, when we see the unsatisfactoriness of following through or not following through, then we can begin to let go of this sense of self that we keep trying to sustain, trying to build up and maintain. Let it go. The proliferation of thoughts of desire, wanting, craving, longing in the mind, 
serve to condition a sense of self. The insight into dukkha serves to arrest and to uproot, ultimately to uproot that belief in self. The fourth nutriment of the craving mental state is consciousness. And I'll speak more about that in my my next talk. Regarding craving, one of my favorite poets, Galway Cannell, wrote a poem called Paradise Elsewhere, <laughs> in which he expresses the understand, a very deep understanding of uh, craving when he says, and yet it has happened to many others and to you too, Galway, when illness or unhappiness or imagining the future wears an empty place inside us, the idea of paradise elsewhere quickly fills it. <laughs> so let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.